We're in Hebrews chapter 10 this evening. Join me in Hebrews chapter 10. Last week, as we are going through our scripture reading, we came to the book of Hebrews. And we started last week looking at Hebrews chapter 1 with the simple idea of the summary of the whole book being the supreme preeminence of Christ, that Jesus Christ is better. And we started off by looking how the book of Hebrews was written, I believe by Paul, but was written to those that had gone through a process, some of whom who had trusted in Jesus Christ, who had been renounced by their families because they had grown up in a Jewish culture. They had been renounced by their family because of their acceptance of Christ. And in so doing, now they were kind of out on their own. And they expected that Christ would be the Messiah who would set up his earthly kingdom. And in time, as what they expected did not occur, they began to question. Is Jesus the true Messiah? Is this way the right way? And so the book of Hebrews begins to answer that by pointing towards the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Well, we're going to jump in in Hebrews chapter 10. If you've been reading along, you read this past week. But let's begin in verse 1. For the law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never, with those sacrifices which they offered year by year, continually make the comers thereunto perfect. For then... Would they not have ceased to be offered? Because that the worshipers, once purged, should have had no more conscience of sin. But in those sacrifices, there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. So we start off here in the first part of Hebrews chapter 10. And we've moved and we've gone through a lot getting here in the previous chapters. And as the teaching continues to help us understand... That in Jesus Christ, there is a supreme preeminence here to what is in the past. That Christ is complete and the answer. And that for us today, that any question, anything else out there pales in comparison to Jesus Christ. And we come back and we now begin to look at part of the tradition of the Jewish religion... But in a greater picture, we begin to deal with the matter of sin and and what sin is, what sin means, and how sin has to be atoned for, how it's got to be paid for. As people began to grow up in Jewish cultures, they learned from a very early age the process of the sacrificial system. The sacrificial system was simple. You went in and there were different degrees at which you offered a sacrifice for different reasons. And at first it would seem very complicated, but growing up in it, they would learn this process. The purpose of the sacrificial system, even as we see it here in Hebrews chapter 10, is that the law was a shadow of the good things that were to come, but it was there to help people understand that they were sinners and that there was a guilt, a payment needed for sin. By nature, man is a sinner, and by choice, he proves that his nature is sinful. We are sinners by nature. 
people will often say, well, I am a sinner because I sin. Well, that's not completely true. We believe, theologically speaking, that we are sinners because of our very nature. Because in the fall with Adam, we inherit now a sin nature. And so I am a sinner because my very nature is sinful. I cannot help but sin. But my actions prove my nature. The, the two are almost inseparable because my nature demands that I am a sinner, but I then in turn show it over and over and over. And it doesn't take long for our actions to reveal our nature. It starts in the crib and it continues through the rest of our earthly lives. When that nature, when those actions show my sin, and I recognize because of multiple reasons. One, rules in my own house. Laws in the land. Common beliefs among people. I recognize that I do wrong. And then I also recognize on a bigger picture that there is punishment for that wrong. And that begins to drive the question in every human being, well, when we do wrong, what's the consequence of our wrong? And regardless of your belief in God, regardless of your belief in Christ, every person who is on this earth, unless they are clinically diagnosed, as we would call them a psychopath, everyone has a moral value about them. Now, even the most staunch of atheists would say they still believe in certain moral principles, whether they want to admit it or not. And it is that aspect of our humanity that helps us understand that we do wrong that then drives us to ask the question, well, what is the ultimate consequence of that wrong? For you and I, we have come to a place to where we recognize that God defines the right and wrong. The Bible is what teaches us God's definition. The Holy Spirit helps lead us but as God defines right and wrong, God then defines the consequences for the right and wrong, and God gives the solution for the right and wrong. So we come back to Scripture for our definition. There are literally billions around the world who are still looking for that answer. And they believe the answer to dealing with their wrong may be simply confessing it and saying certain rote prayers to overcome the wrong that they have done. Even in America today, there would be millions who believe that if they do more good than they do bad, then that outweighs the consequences of the bad. Individuals, mainly in the South, who grow up in the Bible Belt, they still believe that if they are good to the church, then that will make up for the wrong that they do. And so they'll come at Easter and they'll come at Christmas and they will give some money in the offering plate and they believe that by putting a little money in the offering plate that that will make up for any wrong that they have done. So still in man, just like there was in this day, there is still in man this concept of I do wrong, there is sin in me, and I have to somehow deal with that wrong. And the truth is, there's a part of our humanity, and it's the corruption of our pride, that makes me feel like if I deal with the wrong, and I can do enough good, or I can pay for it, that that makes it better for me to deal with the wrong myself. 
isn't it true for you? It, it is for me. If I mess something up, I hate to ask for help to fix it because I made the mess. So I want to fix it myself because it, it's my fault. I made the mess. Let me fix it. It's not your fault. You don't need to help clean this up. I made the mess. Let me fix it. And so we come to God the same way. So God early on with the nation of Israel began to try and teach them that yes, there is a consequence and a punishment for your doing wrong. But I've set the standard for how you deal with that sin. And there's only one way you can permanently deal with that sin. But the sacrificial system was a temporary way to help keep in remembrance in the minds of the nation of Israel the one who would permanently deal with their sin. So, as they go through life, can you imagine growing up in that system? Some of you might even have that background. You grew up in a different religious system where there was a different type of payment for your sin. And the day comes when, as a Hebrew, they had trusted in Jesus Christ and they didn't have to go to the temple anymore. And they didn't have to go and offer a sacrifice anymore. Just knowing humanity, that would have been hard. That would have been very difficult. It's almost like a Catholic who comes to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and then realizes they don't have to go to confessional anymore. That's a hard transition in their mind for them because they're used to this picture that they have to fulfill that God's saying you don't have to do that. And so as these individuals are struggling to deal with their sin nature, the writer of Hebrews is trying to help them understand that that sacrificial system in dealing with your sin nature was not the final answer. You see, sin is very often manifested outwardly, but its cause is always internal. And so as we begin to go through Hebrews chapter 10 here, we see that the problem that's being dealt with is, look, you, we're not dealing with the outward aspect of your sin anymore. We're now moving internally. For then, verse 2, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because that the worshiper once purged should have had no more conscience of sin. They shouldn't have even known about their sin. The sin should have been taken care of if by the sacrificial system it could be covered. But in those sacrifices, there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. Every time that the children of Israel came to make that sacrifice, it was not a sacrifice that took care of their sins. In reality, it just reminded them that they are sinners. There is a fine line in our faith between having a call to remembrance of our sinfulness and yet at the same time living under the freedom that that sin is paid for. Satan wants nothing more than to get believers living under the weight of their sin day in and day out because it will completely destroy your ability to move forward for the Lord. Yet there is in our day and age uh, an aspect in which people are teaching in Christianity 
to completely not worry about the way you live and to take away any guilt associated with doing anything wrong. When what we have to remember is the weight of my sin now is not the punishment of my sin, but it is the break in the fellowship with God. And so to balance those two and to not end up on one side or the other is a challenge. But there's still this recognition that, look, anything you do is not going to cover your sin. If you offer a sacrifice, it's not going to do it. And hey, if you come to church on Sunday night, it's not going to do it. It is not the actions that I do. It is Jesus Christ that paid for my sins. You see, the annual Day of Atonement did not accomplish remission of sin, but was only a reminder. It was this constant reminder of Christ because Christ crucified is the only hope for mankind. The picture here is that the whole sacrificial system was just a shadow, just a shadow of Jesus Christ. If I take a key and I hold a key and the light shines past the key, you can see on the ground the shadow of that key. But the shadow of that key will not unlock anything. It just shows what will unlock. But the key itself can unlock it. Jesus' key that unlocks us and frees us from sin. The sacrificial system was just the shadow. And what we have to make sure is that we don't create our own shadows to help us feel like we are freed from a burden of sin. Because there is no key except for Jesus Christ. Continue reading, if we will, in verse 5. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering that thou wouldst not, but a body hast thou prepared me. And burnt offerings and sacrifices for sins hast had no pleasure. Then said I, Lo, I come in the volume of the book it is written of me to do thy will, O God. Above, when he said sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and offerings for sin, thou wouldst not, neither hast pleasure therein which are offered by the law. Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second, the new covenant, by the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest standeth daily ministering and often, excuse me, and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God, from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstools. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Whereof the Holy Ghost also is a witness to us. For after that he had said before, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my law into their hearts, and in their minds will I write them. And their sins and iniquities I will remember no more. Now, 
where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. When Jesus Christ died, it created a different time, a, a different scenario, a, a different dispensation, a different covenant. There was a promise made to Jeremiah. And the promise was, look, I am coming and I will pay for sin. And then when Christ came, he became that offering once for all. It's a word that we use very rarely. In fact, it's a word we really genuinely only use, for the most part, in a medical condition. When you look there at verse 18, now where remission of these is. When we use the word remission, what do we use the word remission in conjunction with most times nowadays? Cancer. And if you've ever had cancer, remission's a good word. But remission's a scary word, too. I have a friend I went to college with, and I guess it's been about eight, nine years ago now, he found out that he had cancer. And the type of his cancer was one that would be uh, very difficult to treat and one that the long-term outlook on was very poor. In fact, the treatments were known to work well at the beginning, but the reoccurrence rate after five years was, I believe, in the 80 or 90% range. And so if you could go from your initial diagnosis through five years, then at that point, you are actually considered to finally be in remission. And when that five years passed, and when that time came, and you hear remission, now that word's got value right there. That word carries a weight that you and I don't get if we've never heard it in that context. But I want you to understand, that remission and this remission don't even come close to comparing. Where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. You see, when it comes to this new covenant, as defined here in Hebrews, in which Jesus Christ paid for our sins, we see that this covenant, compared to the sacrificial system, compared to anything used today to try and deal with sin, Jesus Christ is superior. And there are seven ways in which he is superior. And I want to look at those very quickly. First of all, it reflects God's eternal will. There in verse 5 and 7, Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldst not, but a body hast thou prepared for me. Verse 7, Then said I, Lo, I come. In the volume of the book it is written of me, To do thy will, O God. It is an eternal will of God. God's plan was never to have this temporary system. God's plan was for Jesus Christ to come and to pay permanently, permanent remission, sin's gone, sin done. And when we come to this moment and we look at Jesus Christ, he is the permanent answer. Now, it, 
you've got to think with me this evening, because for most in here, we have grown up in this. We have grown up in the belief system of Scripture, and so you forget about the power of this because you've never believed anything else. If you think about those around the world who go into some Hindu temple and they offer incense and they pray to their forefathers and they do all of these crazy rituals just to try and gain favor with the gods, and they give their life to this, and they invest, and they sacrifice, and they do all of these things just to gain something. God's going, no, you don't understand. It's always been my will. This was my plan all along. From the moment I made Adam and Eve, I knew that Christ would die, and that he would pay for sins, and it would be done, it would be eternal, because it's what I wanted. I wanted to have this fellowship with you. I wanted to have this relationship with you, and I was willing to pay the cost. It is a permanent system that is based on the eternal will of God. It replaces any old system. Above, verse 8, when he said, Sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and offerings for sin, thou wouldst not, neither hast pleasure therein which are offered by the law. Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second. I'm paying for all, this was all just that shadow. It was just a picture. Was it important? Yes, it was so important, but not because of it, but because of what it represented. Look, do you understand? I am a firm believer. Hey, in here in Hebrews chapter 10, if you go down, it talks about the assembling of yourselves together. Look, I believe that church is important. Church is not it. Church is a group of believers who believe in God, who have trusted in Jesus Christ, who get together to worship God, to grow in God, to edify one another, to exhort to love and good works. It is a group of people who get together for the glory and honor of God, working together to accomplish that. It's not a building. And when we start thinking that coming to church is enough, we're thinking the shadow is enough. The shadow is not enough. It's just a picture. And so when we come together as a group of believers, we have to come for the purpose of recognizing God and honoring God and worshiping God and delighting in God and growing in God. We have to come for the right reason and stop being happy with a shadow. The majority of churches in America today, and I don't believe this to be true globally, but I do believe it to be true in America. I believe the majority of churches today, people are coming together and they're happy with a shadow. And if we're not careful, we are too. It is human nature. It is our sinfulness. It still creeps in. But when we come back and we recognize that the fellowship that I have with God in Jesus Christ replaces all of the old stuff, that i got to make sure I keep the old stuff out and I don't let it back in. God had no delight in sacrifices as such, apart from the obedient heart of the worshipers. By bringing sacrifice to the altar, the Hebrews acknowledge their accumulating debt of sin. Each sacrifice carried with it the endorsement of the Son of God, who guaranteed that he would fully repay all the liabilities, thus acknowledged by the sinner. 
economically, you would remember most, previous to the financial collapse in 07. The market was booming, real estate was going through the roof. In the area which we lived at the time there in Northern Virginia, houses were skyrocketing. In 2005, I saw on the news that the average single family home price in our area was well over $600,000 for a single family home. We lived in a condo that was 1,024 square feet, I believe it was. And it was running around $300,000 at the time. And these were not nice condos. The market was going so high, people couldn't afford housing. So what banks would do is knowing the inflation value of homes, they would come to someone and they'd say, hey, here's what we'll do. We'll loan you money, but what we're going to do is loan you a negative interest rate loan. So what that means is if you buy this house for, let's just say $500,000, we're going to give you a loan on it. And we're going to give you a negative interest rate loan. So at the end of month number one, you're going to make a payment to us. And you're actually going to pay us less than the interest on the loan. So after a month, instead of owing us $500,000, you're going to owe us $500,200. And then the next month, you're going to make another payment. And you're still going to owe us more after two months than after the time you bought the house. And every month, as they made payments on those houses, they owed more money after that month. And you go, why would anyone ever sign that loan and it was the only choice they had it's the only way they could afford to get into a house now all of a sudden pop the market bust and now all of a sudden people owe more on their house than what they paid for the house and the house ain't worth what they paid for and banks are going oh no i don't want this house back because it's there's more owed to me than the house is worth and there's this huge financial collapse and so townhouses that were going for $300,000, a year later, we're going for $100,000. And at the end of every month, every payment that was made, there was just more debt. And people walked away from it. And banks were left holding the bag. And that's exactly what the sacrificial system was. When you came and you made that offering, all it did was to try and pay a debt you couldn't pay. And it just showed that you had sinned more and that you owed more now than you owed before. And so every sacrifice, all it did was remind people of their sinfulness and their inability to pay it. And there are people all over the world who are going to make some kind of sacrifice tonight to pay for a sin debt that all it really does is just prove that their debt got deeper. But there is one who will pay for that debt. And Jesus Christ says, look, there's no sacrifice that'll do it. Even the one that I ordained, even the one I set into motion, it won't cover it. This silly system you've put in, this silly God you've set up to try and worship, it's not going to pay it. But I can pay it. I can take care of it. I can settle the debt. I can wipe it away. And it doesn't matter how much you owe. It doesn't matter how further back you've gone. I can pay that debt. When you look at verse 10, the sacrifice of Christ was better because, it says there in verse 10, by the, which will we, by the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. That word sanctify there is the idea of to be made clean, to be washed, 
We are sanctified in Christ once for all. Positionally, at the moment of salvation, I am seen as clean. It makes the believer holy, set apart by God for God. Here in the original language, this is a perfect participle with a finite verb, which shows in the strongest possible way in the language that believers are continuing and permanent in their salvation. So that my sanctification puts me wholly before God, not because of who I am, but because of who Jesus Christ is. And that sanctification is a one-time event with continual ongoing effect. In other words, this verse right here teaches everlasting life. I am permanently sanctified once for all, continually and ongoing, and that can't be taken away. Now, this is not talking about my progressive sanctification, my walk with Christ. This is talking about positionally, at the moment of salvation, I am clean, I am set apart, I am holy, I am set apart by God, and I am set apart for God. One act in one moment provided permanent sanctification for everyone who places his or her trust in Jesus Christ. On the cross, he sanctified us, set us apart unto himself, forever holy and dear to himself and to the Father. And it is easy to think that there are people who are not worthy of being saved. But it's not the case. There is no one who cannot be permanently sanctified in Christ. It is God's will that our practice match our position that we really become in person who we are in Christ. So that when I have accepted Christ, I am positionally sanctified. And in that positional sanctification, there is a reality that I should be working towards that progressive sanctification in which I become more and more like Christ, not less and less like Christ. You see, my liberty in Christ does not give me license. My liberty drives me to be transformed into His image. And when an individual says, I have freedom in Christ to do that, but the that that they are doing is not like the image of Christ, they have missed the picture. They don't understand Scripture. I don't care what they tell you. Because the reality is that I am positionally sanctified. But I ought to be progressing in my sanctification as well. Verse 11 and 12, And every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. Jesus Christ's death removes sin. These two verses are a series of contrasts. The many priests with the one priest. The continual standing of the old priest with the sitting down of the new. The repeated offering with the once for all offering. The ineffective sacrifice that only covered sin with the effective sacrifice that completely removes sin. In Christ, that wretched nature of mine is removed before God. Though in this flesh I will still deal with my nature until the day I die, the power does not have to control my life any longer. Verse 13, from henceforth 
expecting till his enemies be made his footstools. In the new covenant, Jesus destroyed his enemies. With this promise, he said, I have the power. Jesus turned Satan's worst, trying to kill him, into God's best, becoming the sacrifice for sins. When Satan thought, I've won, little did he know it was his ultimate defeat. Verse 14, for by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. You see, in this we recognize that it perfects the saints forever. The forgiveness of sin is perfect because the sacrifice is permanent. I am so grateful that I don't have to keep coming back to God to gain his favor again, if you will. When the prodigal son runs off, he wastes all that he has. He literally wastes his life. And he comes home. The father sees him a great way off and comes running. Because the relationship had never changed. And now the fellowship it's time to be restored. He says, I want it back. Come on, come on. You see, eternally, I am perfect in God's sight. But eternally, God is now working on our fellowship and drawing me back to Him. Verse 15, Wherefore the Holy Ghost also is a witness to us, for after that he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds will I write them. And their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. It fulfills the promise of a new covenant. In Jeremiah, to accept Jeremiah and his teaching and to understand what he was trying to accomplish was for the people to recognize the Messiah, Jesus Christ, was coming and to accept Christ. When I come to the place to where I recognize my sins and iniquities, will God remember no more? At my best, I can be pretty good at forgiving. At my best, I can take things that have been done personally to me and I can get past those. But I'll tell you, I still can struggle to not remember them anymore. And, and, and I can go through a decision and I can progress through that decision and I can even recognize when that remembrance might interfere with my judgments and I can defer to someone else because of that. I can look at a, a relationship, a situation, and I can see and I can do everything in my power not to hold that against them. But just being honest, I don't know how to not remember because I just remember it. And it's funny, because somebody can do something good to me, and I'll never remember that. But man, somebody does something bad, that can hurt. And it's hard to forget that, as much as I want to. And yet, in Jesus Christ, God says, your sins and iniquities will I remember no more. 
They won't factor in. Because when I look at you, I will see Christ. As we go through life, we have to recognize that even those of us who have the truth of Scripture, who know Jesus Christ as our personal Savior, we still tend, because of our old sin nature, to come back to a place to where we try to deal with our sin our own way because we remember our own sin. And we feel like if I can do something, I can still gain some favor. God's saying, look, please understand. It's paid for. It's done. It's just a shadow. You, you don't have to try and put together some contrived method to gain my favor. All you have to do is come to me in the name of Jesus Christ. And when you come to me and you walk with me and you do those things that I've taught you will help our, our fellowship to grow, it just works. Stop trying to complicate it. And churches keep confusing that for us, and pastors do it, and different theologians, and the internet, and everything else. But look, Christ is better. He's better than everything else. So come back to Christ. And remember, verse 18, now where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. There can be a modern movement that says, oh, well, you just use that to get yourself out of trouble with God. No, if you look at that in context of 1 John, when I want to restore my relationship with God, all I do is recognize there's no more offering for sin. There, there's nothing I can do to get this forgiveness, God. I just come back to you. Let's run back to God through Jesus Christ. You've heard the message. Now I hope you'll respond to it. If you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, now's the time to bow your head and ask Him to save you. In John 6:37, Jesus tells us that He will not cast out anyone who calls upon Him. I hope that you will call on Him today. If you need help spiritually, we'd love to be of service to you. Leave us a message, would you? At hbcga.org or 770-974-9091. Our service times are 1045 on Sunday morning, 930 for Sunday school, 5 o'clock for the evening service, and then 7 o'clock on Wednesday nights. Our services are warm and welcoming, and you will feel right at home. Come and visit us here at Harvest, and call on us if you need us. God bless you.